Whew, boy, what a week it's been. Um, I feel like this, this sermon actually arrived at the perfect time for me. Um, there's been a lot, of, a lot of turmoil in the world in the past uh, seven days. Um, a lot of examples of injustice, a lot of, a lot of darkness that seems overwhelming at times. Um, you know, uncertainty is reigning in a lot of different places in our world. The, the world, stage of world affairs is kind of reaching a fever pitch sometimes, and nobody quite seems to know where it's headed. Um, my academic background was actually in international affairs, um, and global security studies was a, a minor of mine. So um, I can confirm with some perspective that the things we see going on in the world are, are pretty unusual, um, a, little bit, a little bit unsettling. and. Um, you know, there's times when it really riles me up or makes me angry. Um, people who are friends with me on Facebook might know I, I can be a bit of a ranter sometimes. Um, and it, I just, sometimes that, that anger even turns into despair. And so, like I said, the sermon, I'm going to preach on the book of Micah this morning. And um, it really came at a good time for me. And I think that it's amazing how a prophet nearly 3,000 years ago can speak with such clarity to the current situation. Um, and so I hope, I hope you will feel that comforting presence that God has. Um, I'd like to open up in a prayer, if you would. Um, Lord God, rock of the ages, I pray this morning that you would take the humble meditations of my heart and fill them with your spirit, that you might speak and I might get out of the way. Father, I thank you for the message from the prophet Micah. I pray that you would use his voice once again here in this community to speak to us anew, to remind us of who you are and who we are, and your promise to bless and to be, for us to be a blessing to the world. Lord, come and meet with us this morning. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, I pray. Amen. So most people um, are probably familiar with one passage in the book of Micah, um, and the rest of the book gets mostly ignored. Uh, that one passage is Micah 6.8, and it reads, He has told you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. It's an inspiring quote, uh, this is, if you search for it on Google, you find a lot of inspirational photos like this that they've sort of <laughs> turned it into a motivational poster. Um, you know, because it's short, it's easy to digest, it has good buzzwords in it. Um, justice, kindness, some people translate it as mercy, um, humility. But, you know, I think if we treat Micah as if he were writing motivational posters for Sunday school classrooms, we do it an injustice to his message. Um, and the mistake that we make when we turn Bible verses into these sort of almost memes, um, I think is a similar mistake that causes us to despair during really difficult times. Um, if there's one thing I want you to catch this morning, it's this. Don't read the verse and miss the story. Don't let these words just bounce off you like a, like a poster. Hear the, hear the story that gives rise to them, that gives them their power and their challenge. And similarly today, 
in our context. Don't read this page in history as if it is without context, as if God has nothing to say about how we got here or where we're going. Don't read the verse and miss the story. So this morning, I am here to tell you the story of Micah. Before I start, there's, uh, there's a point that I think needs clarifying. Reading the prophets um, and much of the Old Testament in the American church is a bit of a minefield uh, in some respects. There is a tendency by some to read the United States of America into the role of Israel. Um, and that's really fundamentally problematic um, for a couple of reasons, uh, at least. First, the United States did not inherit the promises that God made to Israel. The church did. And when God promised to make Abraham a great nation and through them bless all the nations of the earth, he has fulfilled that promise first through Israel, then through Jesus, their Messiah, then his apostles, missionaries, and a direct line to us, his church. We, as the baptized believers, ourselves raised to new life, are the inheritors of that mission to bless and be blessed. And the second issue is this. Some people seem to ascribe to the belief that because a majority of Americans, and particularly those in positions of power, um, identify themselves as Christians, that somehow they are acting out the desires of God, or that they, are, they use the country apparatus as mechanisms to bring about God's will. Um, but as we will see in the prophecy of Micah, the condemnation leveled against Israel would often fall doubly as hard against us. If you were at all tempted by the belief that America can stand in for Israel, then the prophet Micah ought to scare you to death, particularly given the happenings in recent, recent weeks. So with that in mind, and remembering, don't read the verse and miss the story, let's dive in. So the prophet Micah was probably a farmer or a sheep herder from a small, largely inconsequential town about 25 miles to the southwest of Jerusalem. He finds himself prophesying most likely from the city of Jerusalem in the midst of a grand epic of history. It was a unique moment within the split kingdom of Israel and Judah, and just, I know we've been through the history a lot in our series on, on biblical literacy, but uh, I just want to review real quick, if you're new or you fall asleep when people talk about history. Um, so after King David ruled Israel and established the capital city of Jerusalem, and then his son uh, Solomon built the first temple a little after 1000 BC, uh, he grew it into one of the wealthier nations in the region. Things were very good for Israel for a long time. But after his death, the nation split into two kingdoms, with Israel in the north having Samaria as its capital, and Judah in the south with its capital of Jerusalem. And there were about 180 years between the death of King Solomon and the beginning of Micah's ministry, which is a similar interval between the life of Abraham Lincoln and us today, to give you a sense of scope. Outside historical sources suggest that during Micah's lifetime, Judah may have actually sided with the Assyrian Empire in waging war against the northern kingdom of Israel, who were then scattered throughout the Assyrian Empire. So as Micah begins his ministry, the Assyrian Empire is knocking on both kingdoms' doorstep. Its forces are gathering all around. Historical records suggest that the Assyrian Empire had already surrounded Israel and Judah on all sides. 
But through some combination of diplomacy and small military clashes, they were trying to strike a balance between possibly conquering Israel whole or demanding monetary tribute from its king in exchange for peace. Now, they could afford to pay tribute to Assyria in part because within the capital cities of Samaria and Jerusalem, things are going quite well economically, particularly for the elite class of religious leaders, landowners, and judicial magistrates. Uh, and these are the people that Micah tends to talk to most directly in the book. They've used control of the temple and legal institutions as powerful tools to enrich themselves and to live quite comfortably. <clears throat> Archaeological digs from the period have discovered ornate ivory carvings that would have been extraordinarily lavish for the time, suggesting that some lived opulent, luxurious lifestyles while others suffered significant indignities. The book of Micah reads as a series of proclamations or sermons delivered by Micah on speaking on behalf of God and occasionally adding his own editorial commentary. And the ruling elite of Israel and Judah responding to his prophecy. The book begins with this powerful image of God coming down from above and walking on the mountaintops. It's, it's a poetic picture where the mountains melt under God's foot as he steps down from heaven and the valleys burst open and he arrives to deliver judgment on his people. If you have your Bibles or your smartphones and you want to open up, I'm going to jump around a little bit through the book because I'm trying to cover the general themes. But I'm going to start in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. If you don't know where to find Micah, as I actually had trouble uh, finding it when I began writing this, it's near the end of the Old Testament, uh, a few books after the Psalms. Chapter 2 starts this way. Alas, for those who devise wickedness and evil deeds upon their beds, when the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in their power. They covet fields and seize them, houses and take them away. They oppress householder and house, people and their inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, now I am devising against this family an evil from which you cannot remove your necks. You shall not walk haughtily, for it will be an evil time. So what was their sin? They used power to take land that they wanted, and in doing so, they robbed people of their homes and livelihoods with their greed. They took what they could, and in turn created poverty for those they took from. Land was very important in ancient Israel. Um, it was largely agrarian society, as most were at the time, where people make their living via farming. You couldn't really live decently without some access to land. Uh, and this is part of the reason that so much of the Torah is devoted to rules and regulations around the use and care of land. In many cases, it was literally the difference between life and death for the poor. <laughs> land is a major focus in our modern society as well. It's, it's actually something that occupies a huge portion of the imagination. Um, we have entire television channels devoted to the acquiring and the inhabiting of land. It's called HGTV. <laughs> it allows us to sit on our couch and imagine ourselves shopping for just the right kind of land to suit our needs. It encourages us to agonize over the decoration of our homes and the quality of the rock surface that we prepare our food on. If you really think about what we're doing, it can feel a little silly, but it can also have a darker effect on us as well. Now, I'm not going to go so far as to say that house hunters is evil, 
but it is awfully hard to watch without forming a particular pattern of thought. You see a nice remodeled kitchen or a beach house, and you think to yourself, I wish I could have that. I wonder what it would take for me to afford that. It's nice to dream, isn't it? But what you're really asking yourself is, how much power would I need to acquire that? What would I have to do to make my life like that? How might I rearrange my priorities to get there? You see, the problem is not remodeled kitchens or beach houses. It is a much deeper problem. It's the same problem that Micah is getting at here 3,000 years ago, and because it is an ancient human problem that seems to have run rampant in Israel and runs just as strongly through our society's veins today. We come to believe that the currency of life is power and that fulfilling our desires is its purpose. And this grand prophetic vision of Micah, God tramples the mountains to come down just to deliver the message that this is not justice, that it's wickedness. For Lent this year, I decided I was going to try to do something a little bit different as a spiritual discipline. Um, I decided I was going to try to give up yearning. Um, and I'll admit that up front, it was pretty much an exercise in constant failure. Um, you know, grow so growing up, my family money was pretty tight. And um, I realized that nowadays, even though I'm fortunate to have enough money to live very comfortably and not, I shouldn't be worried about it. Um, there's still an anxiety and an unsettledness that takes root in my heart too easily. So I decided to start naming and removing from my life the things that fed that anxiety and yearning. And it was overwhelming to me to realize how many things in society push us to covet more and to wield it over those who have less. New condo advertisements plastered everywhere, commercials bombarding us with new cars and gadgets and all sorts of things to consume, even the way we interact with each other on social media. I mean, I'm just gonna come out and say it, some of your, vocation, your vacation photos on Instagram caused me to stumble during this time. A lot of what society would have us believe is a benign interest can easily become a malicious longing that distorts justice for others. The strange relationships we foster with real estate or with possessions, the fact that advertising is the grease that keeps many of our public institutions alive, that literally the blood coursing through society's veins is a desirous longing for that which we don't possess. It is far more fundamental than we ever acknowledge on a regular basis. So when you're confronted by this sort of heavy fact, you kind of have two ways of responding to it. You can accept it and seek out a deep repentance where you're not exactly sure what it looks like to live that way, but you have to try and pray that God will give you direction and strength. Or you can do what Micah's audience apparently did, which is ignore it and excuse it. So Micah actually ends up kind of mocking his audience using sarcasm, and I, just, I love any time there's sarcasm in the Bible. It's just so great that God uses even the sarcastic among us to speak his word. So in chapter 2, verse 6, he says mockingly, Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Essentially, they're saying to him, You're crazy, Micah. How could you say that? We're just doing what anyone would have done. Landholders want more land to farm, so they take it. it. Seems like the reasonable thing to do. Micah responds later in verse 11. 
If someone were to go about uttering empty falsehoods, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, such a one would be the preacher for this people. He's saying, what you really want is someone to confirm you can do whatever you wish and say it's of God, that nothing that you do might ever be subject to judgment. You are deluding yourselves. This is what you should hear echoing in your head when you come to Micah 6.8. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly. So much of hearing the prophetic voice is learning to replace our vision with the vision of God, to see that what we think often as acting reasonably in our self-interest for the ways that it might subvert justice for others. To do that, to see the way God sees, requires an extraordinary humility of spirit. But the elite of Micah's day did not have that spirit, so Micah gets more specific with them. Chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, And I said, Listen, you heads of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, should you not know justice, you who hate the good and love the evil? And then picking up in verse 9, Hear this, you rulers of the house of Jacob and chiefs of the house of Israel, who abhor justice and pervert all equity, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with wrong. Its rulers give judgment for a bribe, its priests teach for a price, its prophets give oracles for money, and yet they lean upon the Lord and say, surely the Lord is with us. No harm shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house, the temple mount, a wooded height. In each case, the sins of the Israelites are that they used power to better themselves rather than to bless. Instead of delivering justice or pastoral care or the wisdom of prophecy, they solicit bribes, serving only those who can afford to pay. They extract and consume rather than bless and give of themselves. And the penalty is severe. Zion shall be plowed as a field. The temple that you have built the temple of Solomon, the grandest, most proud structure in all of Israel's history, will be dirt. It's an interesting metaphor for complete destruction by a rural farmer turned prophet, though, isn't it? A hint of hope that even in complete devastation, God lays the groundwork for new life. And then appropriately comes the promise of restoration. Micah chapter 4 Verses 6 and 7. In that day, says the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. The lame I will make the remnant, the remnant and those who are cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion now and forevermore. There is something really fundamental to the prophetic vision in Micah and all, the, all of the prophets, really. The weak, the outsider, the rejected, these are not ancillary figures in the story of God. They are not even the recipients of charity or passive beneficiaries of God's favor. They become the main characters. The powerful have run amok in Israel. They have angered God to the point that he destroys their temples. And then what does he do? Does he choose among their leaders, their soldiers, their wise men? No. He chooses from the weak and the afflicted, and on the plowed field where the temple once stood, he promises that again he will build a strong nation. 
We have a human tendency to polarize ourselves. We inevitably leave some people on the margins, excluded from full participation, their needs ignored. And then others consolidate power, money, and favor. They are esteemed by virtue of their position, and they become obsessed with maintaining it. The prophet makes it clear which side God has chosen. And I think periodically we need to be reminded of that, and sometimes to endure a little judgment, <clears throat> so that if necessary, God can remake us, centered around the weak and the outcast. that we might make, look more like a savior who transformed the world by dying, humiliated on a cross, that we might find resurrection life as well. <clears throat> I think in today's context, you know, if you want to despair, you can always find reasons to despair. That's been true of any age in human history. But if we learn to not read the verse and miss the story, to not read this page in history and miss what God is doing. I think we can overcome despair and find new hope. If the church is to be of any use today, it has to be a place where we do not gawk at the headlines of the day and hang our heads. But instead, we are the people who recite the innumerable encyclopedic volumes of the history of God's goodness and his grace of his redemption and his victory, not just over the sins that afflict us currently, but over death itself. We must be the people who are unfazed by this page in history because we know the author of the book and that God's judgment is about restoration and recreation of the world as he intended it to be. I think if Micah could be transported to our present day and see the turmoils that we faced, he'd probably laugh for a moment and wonder where the Assyrian army is this force that seemed overwhelming and pretended to be the authors of their own destiny, now lost to the dustbin of history. They ruled for only a bit over a hundred years before they were overrun by the Babylonians. But the promises that God was at work keeping, his covenant with Israel and his longing to bring about the fullness of life, that has endured, and we are here to testify to it. So Micah might turn to us and say, do not despair at the wickedness of the powerful for they can do no worse than plow the fields for God's new creation. May we be the people who bring new life to the weak, who give hope to the weary, and who always testify to the goodness of a God who keeps his promises throughout the ages. Let us pray. Father God, I pray that as we come to the table your grace would be poured in our hearts and we would be reminded of the story we inherit. That as we receive this blessing and we go from this place back to our lives, that we would not despair, but we would remember that we are your people and we are called to bless and be a blessing to everyone around us. Father God, I thank you for that inheritance. I thank you for your promises and that over 3,000 years, you still keep them. In Jesus' name, amen.